I'm Fran Scott, and this is How to Build a Railway. In this episode, we're getting green fingers as we explore HS2's Green Corridor. As you heard in episode one way back, the HS2 route, it was carefully considered and every metre was agonised over. Now, one of the major considerations was trying to avoid sites of natural significance. And the route was moved and tunnels were constructed to reduce HS2's impact on the countryside. And once the route was finalised, the next job was to set a plan to protect, replace and improve on any green space that remained on the rail path. And that work has meant planting millions of trees, developing hundreds of new wildlife habitats and a commitment to no net loss of biodiversity across the project, with an ambition to even have net gains in certain sections. This is an environmental project that just happens to have a railway running through the middle of it. Which sounds far-fetched, but that is exactly what HS2 have done by establishing what has become known as the Green Corridor, which is actually the largest environmental project in the UK. It's an initiative that we launched a couple of years ago that's really got two parallel aims. So firstly, there's the minimising and the compensating for the impacts of the scheme. So that's dealing with all the things we need to through the Act, through the regulations, etc. And then secondly, there's the support to the local environmental projects, local communities looking wider than our railway boundary. David Priest-Jones is the Biodiversity Manager at HS2. And the first step for the HS2 ecological team was to work with Natural England to look at the route. Natural England's job is to advise and regulate big projects so that impacts on nature are avoided or mitigated or compensated. And they also work with infrastructure projects like HS2 to help maximise opportunities for enhancing nature. And Natural England has been advising on HS2 all the way back since 2008. So from very early on, we were consulted on the appraisal of sustainability for the project. And that's when they were still looking at route options and alignments. We worked with HS2 early on to look at the impact on SSSIs. Kathleen Covell is the principal advisor at Natural England for HS2. And SSSI stands for Sites of Special Scientific Interest. And um, for phase one of the project, they were originally thinking that they might impact on three triple SIs. But discussions with us, we were able to talk to them about removing one of those sites from the project. And they were looking at an access route for that site and were able to reroute that. And so they've moved away and they just avoided that impact altogether on that protected site. One way HS2 avoids impacting the environment is through tunnels. And over 35 miles of phase one is in a tunnel. And that protects areas of natural beauty and hectares of ancient woodland. But of course, building tunnels or changing the alignment of the route is not always an option because high-speed rail needs to run on the straightest and flattest route possible. Importantly, though, there are lots of other mitigation efforts that can and are being used to reduce the impact. So if they can't avoid, then you're starting to look at, well, are there mitigating actions you can put in place? 
could you do the works at a particular time of year or through a particular kind of methodology of construction that means you reduce that impact so for example if they if a developer was working within a woodland you know how can they change the design of the of the project to take as little woodland out as possible and to protect what's there this is important ongoing work for hs2 and its contractors it's you know heavily influenced by the contractors looking at the design and designing the scheme how they will construct it but also where the footprint of the scheme is going to be to avoid things like ancient woodland you know a, a key one of the um, receptors and that might be making gradients steeper you know tying back the land that they need taking that little bit less land for an access track um, and all of that can make a real difference and, and that's still going on on phase one our contracts are still designing parts of the scheme to really reduce those impacts Kat Stanhope is the ecology lead at HS2. Kat and David's work has focused on creating the green corridor of new wildlife habitats and woodlands alongside the railway, while reducing the impact on the existing environment, including ancient woodlands. We reported originally, in terms of the environmental statement, that we were going to lose, I think it was around 29 hectares of ancient woodland. Since that point of design, we have reduced that number by about 20% as of the most recent numbers, and we're continuing to reduce it. That extra mitigation work with the contractors to use up as little land as possible during the works actually saved 5.7 hectares of woodland that was previously expected to be lost. The ecology team at HS2 aren't just focused on avoiding woodlands, they are actually creating new ones. Across phase one, seven million trees and shrubs are being planted. And on top of that, there are also new schemes like the Woodland Fund available to further support the creation of even more new woodlands. So that's a £5 million fund that was set up specifically to uh, support the creation of native woodland and the restoration of ancient woodland within a 25-mile zone surrounding the railway. So that was set up in response to the impact that we have on ancient woodlands, which are obviously irreplaceable habitats. And we are continuing to reduce our impacts on them. But in recognition of the impact, we set up this £5 million fund. And that's for phase one. We've got a £2 million fund now established for phase 2A. The £5 million woodland fund has been in operation for a number of years now. And at the last count, we've supported 30 plus projects. Um, we spent about £1.5 million of it. Through this woodland fund, 130 hectares of new woodland has already been planted. That's more than 300,000 trees. And in addition... Over 60 hectares of ancient woodland has been restored back to a good condition. And this is because of this woodland fund. It's administered by the Forestry Commission to anyone with land within 25 miles of the HS2 route. And you can apply for that fund to either create new woodlands or restore or extend existing ones. Then it's also got to be linked ideally to an existing ancient woodland, maybe extend of ancient woodland, as I say, restore existing woodlands. And that's a unique offering that, that our fund provides, which other woodland creation funds in the UK doesn't. 
so we provide the costs for doing all the works and we also provide costs for 10 years worth of management and maintenance and monitoring so um, they are managed for that period over that period we'll have um, we have a, a, an officer a woodland officer go out from the forestry commission to look at each of those sites and just check that they are achieving the conditions that they need to so we we, we provide that you know it's not just about creating it's about making sure that it, it sort of achieves the targets going forward yeah of course, it does take time for new woodland to become established and then support various wildlife species. But HS2 has built this into its thinking. The advantage is that because we have a monitoring program and a management program over a long period of time is that we are collecting data on how those sites are doing, how they can be best managed, whether we actually need to tweak some of those sites to make them of the most benefit for, for species and um, in future for public use of those sites as well. One way the HS2 Ecology team is hoping to boost the growth of new woodland is by moving the soil from ancient woodland to the new woodland areas. Yeah, on the ancient woodlands, um, they've been there for a period of time. They're, they're defined as ancient. They've been there since 1600 and they've had a, a cover of woodland for that time. So over that time, the soil builds up a, a particular biota, uh, microbes and fungi and all the kind of the seed bank of the soil. I think when you when you talk about ancient woodland translocation, people do uh, assume that you're picking up large trees and translocating them. And there is a method for doing that. And uh, people still try to do that with specific single trees, but the, the failure rate of that translocation of an individual tree is very high. Simon Mackerel is the Director of Business Operations at Thompson Environmental Consultants and they've been working on translocating ancient woodlands for HS2. What we've tried to achieve is the translocation of the soil in its entirety and in its, and in its horizons onto a receptor site that mirrors the same conditions of the donor site and we very specifically removed the layers, which is the uh, the O horizon, the organic horizon, followed by the A horizon or topsoil and the B horizon, subsoil, for sim simplicity. Those are the three horizons we focus on and put that back in the exact depth as we've taken it from the donor site. So what you're doing, you're transferring the woodland soils and, and all the seed bank that's within it and, the, the, and all the other composition of that of that site and you're moving it in its entirety and we are planted you know we did plant some some saplings and trees and take some some individual species over we planted uh monoliths both live and dead monoliths um for bat roost features and yeah year year one in um that first year after translocation on the sites that we did there was uh, a proliferation of wildflowers and unusual species that um some of those seed banks had clearly been dormant for a long time and suddenly exposed to to a to a new condition a uh, new site new conditions they looked fantastic looked really good while simon says the signs on the ground are promising the hs2 team are also monitoring what's in the ground over the long term and one of the tests that we have been one of the innovations that we've been trialing is to do edna monitoring that's environmental dna of the soil and on phase 1 we took samples before the soils were moved and in future, we will take um, different soil samples at different stages throughout the development of the habitats to see 
what things like um, bacteria are doing, what fungi are doing, and how they develop and how they have reacted to the translocation process, as well as the monitoring of the traditional, you know, how the habitats are doing above ground. The Green Corridor isn't solely focused on the impact on ancient woodland. Back in 2012, HS2 actually made a commitment to no net loss of biodiversity from the project. Which at that stage was was really ambitious for a project of its size, with the idea being that they would take a baseline of all of the habitat that they were impacting and then they would compensate enough to make sure that there was no net loss of those habitat types when the project was constructed. But then the discussion around biodiversity net gain, as it's called, has really progressed since that early stage, that early commitment to no net loss. So over the last five years, really, to see if the project could move from that no net loss to making a net gain. HS2's desire to deliver biodiversity net gain is not only very ambitious, but also hugely important to UK wildlife. Biodiversity is declining faster at the moment than at any time in human history, and particularly in the UK. We've got 40% of species in decline. More than 400 million birds have been lost over the last 50 years. quarter of our mammals are threatened with extinction, including species that used to be really common, like the hedgehog. And the UK, it means that we're really one of the most nature depleted nations on, on the planet. So for big infrastructure to, to deliver net gains in the natural environment, it is really essential. HS2's Green Corridor will end up encompassing 33 square kilometres of wildlife habitat on phase one. That's 4,600 football pitches worth, which when you do the maths is a 30% increase compared to what was there originally. A shift to biodiversity net gain of the replaceable habitats around the route that are being impacted would mean you'd see this really big green corridor emerging and you'd get much more opportunity to be able to connect uh, pockets of habitat around the route and connect them to that corridor as well. The first key step to achieving an aim like biodiversity net gain is understanding what you're up against. And that means doing site surveys. And for Simon's team at Thompson Environmental, that has meant doing a lot of surveying. We started doing surveys down in the early sectors, down in the Colne Valley for HS2. And since then, we've we've sort of followed the whole trace all the way up to the Midlands. Baseline surveys, yeah, to, to map out what's there, flora and fauna. Uh, and all the species and uh, populations. All this survey work gives you an idea about what you're trying to replace before you move into building new wildlife habitats. And for habitats of protected species that are then being lost, as per any development project, HS2 complies with legislation and laws, including obtaining the necessary protected species licences from Natural England before they can begin any work on site. Activities include moving protected species to new habitats. So, for example, bats have been a particular area where there have been a number of impacts because where the scheme is having to take woodland down, if bats are present in that woodland, High Speed 2 has to have a licence in order to take those trees down. It means they have to work very carefully. They can only work at particular times of year. 
to remove trees. They have to survey the trees beforehand to make sure there are no bats present, no bat roosts present. Um, and they can't take any trees down during the hibernation phase if we know that there are bats present in particular trees. But before they can remove the habitats of protected species, they must have created new habitats for them to go to. And for the bats, they have built bat houses. So traditionally, bats would roost in, in caves or in tree holes. But they have become um, integrated into lots of buildings where they will use the loft spaces or they'll use spaces behind barge boards or around window lintels. So we're basically recreating those buildings with those spaces already built in that the bats can use. And they're part of our monitoring um, scheme as well. And we have, of the nine bat houses that were created for phase one, in the first year of monitoring, six were already being used by roosting bats. Another species that HS2 is frequently dealing with is the great crested newt. And all great crested newts in the path of HS2 need to be identified and moved to new habitats before construction work can take place. Great crested newts will often get into and around the roots of hedgerows and be quite hard to um, get hold of if you're an ecologist on the grounds. So in 2019, HS2 actually funded research to see whether dogs could help out with this task by sniffing out the great crested newt. And it did find that conservation dogs could, or the conservation dogs we worked with could reliably detect great crested newts. And we got the first um, Natural England licence for great crested newt that allowed the use of conservation dogs in mitigation work. So they've been used to uh, pinpoint the location of newts in the field so that they can be rescued before the, the habitat gets taken and they have been then moved to the new habitat sites that we've created. And with every new ecological site that gets created to house protected species, a management and monitoring plan specifically tailored to that site is then created. And that could last for as long as 50 years. We've got over 100 plots of ecological mitigation now across the route, so we're now in... Um, and the monitoring timing depends on the construction time. But we've got some that are now in their second year of monitoring, and we've been monitoring things like grassland success, woodland condition, um, how the ponds that we're putting in are doing. And we do have to... We have a commitment to produce an annual report detailing all of that monitoring, which is reviewed by an external st group of stakeholders some environmental stakeholders like Natural England, Forestry Commission, some of the wildlife trusts, uh, review that data every year. And they can make recommendations of how we might change the management of the sites. And the management of each site can be quite intensive. It's not enough to just build a pond or plant some trees and then just leave it. So if you don't manage the, the, the vegetation in the ponds, then they'd soon become... Uh, choked up, they'd soon become overgrown through secondary succession and uh, they wouldn't be suitable for great crested newts to, to breed in. The same with the trees, so we've planted you know, thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of trees uh, alongside our grasslands and if we didn't manage the grasslands around the trees in the first arguably five to six years, the trees would get outcompeted by the grasses and it would impede their, their growth. The management of each site is broken up into short-term and then long-term management strategies. So 
the initial maintenance is to allow key elements of the site to mature to a point where they can look after themselves as it were and then the long-term maintenance is just ensuring that that is still the case and uh, long-term maintenance is just doing similar things to the short-term maintenance but less frequency and then uh, eventually the sites become self-sufficient they become self-sufficient in the fact that they monitor themselves and succession takes over and, and certain species will dominate and certain species won't but yeah the initial maintenance is to give it a helping hand to get to the maturation point you need it to be to sustain the flora and fauna that you've created the sites for so you're constantly monitoring for invasive non-native species making sure that they don't get into site and dominate New habitats from woodlands to grassland to wetlands are being set up along the HS2 route, but their biggest project is the plan to rewild 127 hectares around the Chilton Tunnel. This plan would use aggregate materials that are left over from the construction process and also reuse an impressive 3 million cubic metres of excavated chalk. It does represent the, the biggest single habitat creation project on the HS2 Green Corridor. And we're reusing material that we're taking from the Chilton Tunnel in that habitat creation project. And that's having carbon benefits as well, because it's drastically reducing the amount of lorry uh, movements that we're having to take off site. Using the chalk as it's being removed from the tunnel to create new habitat has many environmental benefits, but work still needs to be done to make sure that the chalk will be suitable for growing new grasslands. It kind of comes out in more of a slurry, kind of chalk clay slurry, so it will need some treatment to make it suitable to use as the base of the habitats. Studies are currently underway to see how the growth of various habitats are impacted by the chalk and the clay slurry and what will need to be done to optimise the growth of new habitats. And the new site is also being designed to allow for it to be potentially managed by livestock, which of course is a more environmentally friendly way to manage ecological sites. The designers have designed it in such a way that it could be um, conservation grazed in future. So the things that you have to think about, about you know, feeding watering troughs, the animals, gates to keep them in, crossing points so that they can roam freely, but to get across lanes and how they will interact with the public, that's being thought about now. So that in future, if we do come into partnerships with tenant farmers or organisations that could graze that area for us, the infrastructure is already in place. But across all the new habitats being created, climate change is being taken into account. New ecological sites are being designed to be more resistant to the impacts of climate change. For example, trees and shrubs being put in place are being selected from more southerly climates. Trees going into new woodland in the north could be coming from the south of England or even northern France. We're not proposing on planting palm trees or any other sort of, you know, we, we are still planting trees and shrub species that are native to the UK. We're just using seed stock from, from areas where they're, they're slightly more resistant to the, to the effects of the changing climate, yeah. The HS2 ecology team are also looking at ways to prevent ponds from drying up in the ever-increasing drought conditions being experienced in the UK. Things like how we line ponds how we design ponds so that they capture and hold water for longer periods of time, which is especially something in the drought conditions we're on phase two at the minute. We're trialling 
it sounds over-engineered, but, but tankered water, a, a system of filter drains to bring water from a larger catchment to make sure that over a larger area that water channels into the pond. And because there are ponds in the countryside, you know, nothing to do with created ponds that have dried up, especially over the last year in the drought conditions. So we're trying to counter that by making sure that they hold water for longer. During the management of the site, Simon is already seeing the negative impact of flooding and dry weather. Of course, some sites have, have done better than others. Uh, some of the, you know, the, due to influences outside of our control, really, you know, some of our sites have have, um, have flooded every winter and that's been a bit of a setback. And in the in the year that we create these sites, we, we had one of the wettest winters followed by a drought summer, followed by another very wet winter. So that was challenging, just trying to get the, some of these sites established. But some of them prospered, you know, some, you know, some sites and some species did better than others. Simon has seen over his career how ecologists have had to start adapting their behaviour to a changing climate. I mean, in my lifetime, definitely, you know, the grass cutting season was was quite pronounced. You know, you, you'd, you'd start cutting grass, uh, arguably end of March, early April. You know, now we're cutting grass late February, early March. And you stop cutting grass generally mid-October. Now we're sometimes cutting grass into November and December. And that's been noticeable in my lifetime. So we just adapt, we just change, we just, you know, our, our, our seasonal calendar changes with it. Our methodology of operations doesn't really change yet. I think it's just um, we adapt our calendar to that change. And as HS2 is a project of such grand size and timescale, what HS2 is able to do is provide ecologists throughout the UK with an incredible opportunity to test new methods and technologies and collect huge amounts of data to monitor how these projects are going. We're uniquely placed to do, you know, to do work like um, we're doing a we're doing monitoring uh, research projects at the moment on the efficacy of the translocation of ancient woodland soils. Mm-hmm. Like we've we've got we've got the you know the long term impact. But we've got the long timescales of a project that means that we can we can look at these sites where we've impacted, look at the soils that we've translocated to different receptor sites and see how those sites establish over time. You know, that's quite a unique place for a for a, for a project to be in. And we can aid the scientific base, I guess, in terms of the understanding of, of the, the viability of translocating soils. I think there's there's lots of exciting areas that we can we can work in as a project that's operating over such a lengthy timescale. We're really lucky, HS2, I think, that we are. it's open to funding quite a lot of innovation projects. And so one that I've been quite heavily involved in is it, it's involved in data again. As I said, we collect a lot of data, but we, we're trialling the use of drones and sensor technology to collect more data on how habitats are doing and monitoring data, because the, the advantages of that is that you can cover a much bigger area in a much quicker time. You're collecting it in a consistent way one of the contractors used um, thermo-imaging because traditionally you'd find ground-nesting birds by walking up and down a field which can often miss nests and they they worked with a company who flew drones with thermo-imaging cameras and were able to find, I think they got something like 20% more nests than were found with traditional surveyors walking across the ground. So just the, the size of the project I think allows those 
new ways of doing things, sometimes out of necessity, because otherwise there would just be too much to cover. Absolutely. So those new bits of technology can actually uh, make it viable to do the surveying and, and make it more efficient. But it means that, you know, as well as getting that good quality data from these new technologies, it means that we can, it's not such a uh, hands-on labor intensive process, like we can use our resources more efficiently, rather than traditionally, you know, you would have had people go out and walk, walk up and down, you know, systematically through these areas to record what they found, it would take a long time, take a lot of effort. The impact on wildlife and woodland is one of the most contentious areas around the entire HS2 project. And it's always going to be for any major infrastructure project. But if we look to the ecologists, then both David and Kat think that HS2 has shown that the role of ecologists on infrastructure projects is changing and they're having more influence than ever before. When I first started my career, I think ecology biodiversity was seen as a blocker for a lot of developments. You know, it was not seen as something that should be dealt with sort of harmoniously or positively. It was seen as a problem. You know, you, you know, people would see see it as an issue. You know, newts, bats, these other things would be seen as problems for the de- developments. But I think things have changed. I agree that ecology, because I've, I've been in the industry for 20 years and it, it, it used to be seen as the ecology was the constraint and people would, you'd be expected to deal with it and get the constraint out of the way. But I think much more the environment is thought of at the forefront now and especially even engineers that I work with, especially younger engineers that are coming through the university are, are trained and have part of their courses are environment, how to deal with environment. And some of them get really excited in how to come up with the best solution to to a a situation rather than see it as a problem that just needs to be kind of got out of the way so that's really exciting it is and we've got support you know all the way up to the top you know our our chief exec recognizes the importance of these topics and our board do and our non-execs do and you know we speak regularly to these groups about it and I, i feel that that's a conversation that maybe 10 20 years ago might not have happened at that level but it it does HS2 is a major infrastructure project that will unavoidably impact some habitats and woodlands. But when we look at the figures and the commitment HS2 has made towards ecology and biodiversity, that all means that by the end of the project, not only will there be a new high-speed train line, but also a new green corridor of woodlands, more habitats and increased biodiversity that will benefit both wildlife and communities. There are some instances where the proposed line has gone through an ancient woodland, but the majority of the sites that I see and I've worked on have been grassland, arable farmland, still habitat in its own right, but what I would say is of low value. And what we've replaced it with on scale is, as we've described earlier, quite a a diverse habitat. So I think the like-for-like replacement would have been the expected norm 20 years ago but what hs2 have done have actually you know replaced low value habitat with high value habitat on a multiple on a multiplying factor we are fundamentally building a new railway there's going to be an impact and we're, we're not hiding from that fact that there's going to be an impact i think the misconception would be maybe the scale of the impact that we're having and also what we're doing about it in terms of our response 
And then I think part of that is due to the fact that a lot of our mitigation sites, the work that Kat and her team have been working on, are in their infancy. A lot of them are not that well established or developed yet. And over time, when the habitats grow up, when the trees grow up, I think there'll be actually something there to see in terms of an outcome. But we're still at an early stage of a project that is going to last a number of decades. <laughs> what I'd like to see at the end of this is a, is a railway that knits itself into the landscape and leaves a, something that's better than what was there before, and I think that's what we're on track to do. Next time on How to Build a Railway. It's one of the things that we are doing really differently is sharing the innovations that are successful right across all of HS2. We drive this highly collaborative approach. So in return for the funding that we've given them, they have a very clear business case and return on investment. It became a bit like watching the, the match back afterwards with the team to look at how can we improve it, how can we do it better. We'll go and find improvements, deliver those changes, so everyone can see that they're making those improvements. We're putting the passengers first and foremost in, into our station design. The sensors are really helping us understand how people flow around the station. We combine that with a layer of artificial intelligence and analytics. Your host has been me, Fran Scott, and thanks to our guests, Kathleen Coville, Kat Stanhope, Simon Mackerel, and David Priest-Jones. To learn more about HS2, go to hs2.org.uk or follow us on social media at HS2LTD.